Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Lee Davies. Hello. So this week we are discussing Our Flag Means Death, the phenomenally popular pirate sitcom created by David Jenkins. Taika Waititi and Reese Darby star as heavily fictionalised versions of the 18th century pirates Blackbeard and Steed Bonnet, who form an unexpected friendship and then fall in love. The show has been praised for its impressive supporting cast, its attitude to queer representation, and its combination of light comedy and emotional storytelling, gaining a cult following over the past six weeks. Very wild to consider that this show has existed for less than two months, because it is literally everywhere, and is currently outstripping far more famous shows like uh, Euphoria and stuff. And it's great. It's fucking amazing. I love it. Yeah, um... Okay, I was like, you have to watch this. You have to watch this. We have to do an episode about this show. You have to watch this. And I was like, okay, I will. I will watch the television program. I haven't been watching very much TV recently at all, but I also obviously noticed that people were talking about this online. And also, and it's a 10-episode, half-hour sitcom, which is, oh, yeah, you know. <laughs> not a not a significant commitment. But uh, I watched eight episodes in a row. <laughs> <laughs> and would have watched 10 if it hadn't been like one in the morning and I needed to go to sleep. I actually think it was seven. But anyway, I watched the remaining episodes the next day and I enjoyed it very much. I'm not as like fanatically enthusiastic as you, I believe, which I have like a couple minor critiques of the show. I think a lot of it is just a matter of taste. We were talking briefly before we started recording about the kind of sitcoms that we enjoy. And we've talked about this in the past when we have discussed sitcoms on this podcast. I think probably primarily when we did an episode on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, which is one of my favorite sitcoms ever. I primarily like sitcoms that are about really horrible people who don't learn anything ever. So basically like the Seinfeld model, right? And this is more in the vein of a show that's about people who ultimately are nice finding like community which I completely understand like why that's appealing to people I just kind of run through it like I do enjoy it I think there's a lot about the show that's really good but then I kind of feel like I have a cavity when I'm done like it's it's kind of too nice for me but that's completely a taste issue that's not me saying that there's something like wrong with the show so that's kind of where I'm coming from yeah in terms I mean of, like, I my enjoyment. don't actually like a lot of sitcoms especially American sitcoms for somewhat similar reasons I'm also a big fan of Always Sunny and the show that I think this automatically gets comparisons to is Ted Lasso because they both have this protagonist whose job is to be comically naive and positive and optimistic in a really cynical environment because Captain Steed Bonnet, kind of the concept of him is that he is this wealthy landowner who's very privileged and innocent about the world and he has a midlife crisis and decides to run away to sea and become a pirate. And this of course is a complete fiasco disaster and then Blackbeard, the legendary figure, is kind of his opposite number. This guy who's really experienced and terrifying and is like a full-on murderer and stuff. Well, I mean, you can debate whether he's actually a murderer in the context of the show, but like that is his image. And then it becomes this sort of odd couple partnership where each of them teaches the other one something. And it's very Ted Lasso-ish in the context of Steed Bonnet because like he's in this workplace sitcom scenario, which is a comparison that the showrunner David Jenkins has directly made because it is pretty much a workplace sitcom, but it's also got a really good structured emotional arc for the main characters. I've seen it explicitly compared to The American Office, which is a show, like, I remember watching the first two seasons of that when they aired when I was in high school and really loving it. And then I think that show kind of tails off in a major way, but obviously it's remained, like, the most popular show in America slash possibly the world because everyone just watches it on Netflix endlessly. There's a fantasy to The Office about the people you work with forming this bond when in reality corporate environments are you know nightmares for various reasons right and I think the context of this show is obviously different because it's in this total fantasy in this historical setting but it does have that same sense of like we're all working together and everyone is supporting each other and isn't that really nice and I think the supporting cast is very funny and 
talented and we will talk about them specifically but i was way less interested in that part of the show broadly speaking than the central relationship because the central relationship was where the more meaty stuff was coming and i felt like those characters were being developed in a more substantial way yeah i mean in 10 episodes obviously you're not going to have a lot of really deep characterization for the background people but i really did think that the whole supporting cast is exceptional. We will talk about that later in the episode. But like sitcoms generally, a lot of the characters will be kind of in the stock character zone. And in this, there's a lot of very broad, silly comedy, but each of the people in the background just seems so specific. And the actors who've been cast are incredible and all very experienced kind of in different ways. But yeah, I mean, we should talk a bit about the background of this show before we go any further. And also for listeners who are new to the show we will discuss more spoilery stuff toward the end and the first section will be somewhat less spoilery but yeah just to kind of very briefly touch upon the real historical figures at play here obviously this show is not attempting to educate it is extremely loosely historical in a very explicit and fun way it is set kind of during the golden age of piracy early 18th century set kind of in the Bahamas zone. So there's actually a lot of overlap with my favourite show of all time, Black Sails, which deals with some similar themes while having an extremely different tone. But Blackbeard, kind of self-explanatory, we've heard of him, famously terrifying and awful figure, extremely murdery. And Steve Bonnet is a great kind of narrative role here. David Jenkins kind of said he just heard casually about Steve Bonnet in passing from his wife and then looked him up on Wikipedia and was like, holy shit, this guy's story conforms perfectly to a three-act structure, which is an amazing and very relatable origin story for someone's writing project. But in real life, Steve Bonnet sounds just terrible. I mean, this character has been kind of created whole cloth from the uh, backbone of this guy's story. He was also a lot younger, like the two main characters in this are explicitly kind of middle-aged, but Steed Bonnet was in his early 30s, I think, when he abandoned his family and went off to be a pirate. And um, clearly just like an obnoxious rich guy. He was very bad at it. He did briefly team up with Blackbeard, who kind of took control of his ship because he was such a bad captain, but he did not meet a happy end. The unhappy ending that uh, Steve Bonnet met early in his life, I don't think will be kept for the show. I think they're going to give everyone a much happier ending for many reasons. But um, yeah, there's also some other kind of noted historical figures. There's Israel Hans, who at this point historically would have been a teenager, but is played by Con O'Neill in his mid 50s <laughs> as like the second in command to Blackbeard. And also there is a cameo role for Spanish Jackie who is actually basically a made-up person, but is viewed as a historical figure by many as a female pirate leader from the time. And I think they're kind of keeping various other pirates for future seasons. But yeah, David Jenkins, the showrunner, is kind of appeared out of nowhere for a lot of people. He previously was the showrunner of the sci-fi comedy series People of Earth. He's also a former actor and playwright. And interviews with him are really just so interesting. It's very clear that he's this really smart, thoughtful guy and you can kind of tell the depth of the show and also like the way he works as a collaborator is really central to why this show is so good because he is kind of the opposite of these showrunners and directors who kind of make it all about themselves. He's very open about how much input he's getting from actors and other people in the writer's room. We will have links in our show notes to various interviews with him, but there's a really good one in Collider and The Verge and LA Times, which kind of talk to him and Taika Waititi, who is the most famous person involved and is kind of exec producer as well as directing the first three episodes. And for those who are not familiar with Reese Darby, the lead actor, he's very well known as an actor and comedian in New Zealand, but I think foreigners will know him best from Flight of the Concords and uh, maybe Voltron, if you're that kind of person. I've seen What We Do in the Shadows, the film which he's in, but that was years ago and yeah. I don't remember him specifically. So I didn't really recognize him and I think he's really wonderful in the show. And I think the Taiko Waititi thing is really interesting because I think his career is really fascinating, period, but specifically what he's been doing in the past few years, which is he's obviously working on some films of his own. I think he was directing a film when the pandemic started. I may have the timeline of that wrong. It feels like there he's been doing like a smaller indie type movie in New Zealand for like a long time that I think was interrupted. Yeah, he's got like a sports comedy coming out yeah. kind of concurrently with the new Thor film. Yeah, so he's obviously been working on that stuff, but a lot of his time and energy seems to be going toward 
shepherding other people's projects. So obviously the what we do in the Shadows television show, he executive produces and like will occasionally direct an episode, but that's not primarily his project at all. And then he also was the executive producer of Reservation Dogs, the half hour show set on a Native American reservation that was like a huge deal critically here last year, which I I'm ashamed to say I still have not seen. It's like the top of my list. Everyone said it was fantastic. And then again, in this case, he obviously is contributing creatively to this and he's acting in it in a major way, which is different from those other two shows. But in all three cases, like he's contributing his fame and power to really good projects that aren't primarily his creative vision, which feels smart to me because I think... Jojo Rabbit, which he won an Oscar for um, screenplay for, neither of us has seen, but was a point at which a lot of people kind of went sour on him after he had basically been coasting on like pure positive vibes for a long time. Yeah, that that is not a film that I plan to see. It does not look good. Although, obviously, huge fan of Mr. Waititi's work in general. I think when you're someone who's as gifted as he obviously is in in many fields, particularly writing and this kind of comedy writing, it can be very tempting to sort of become enamored of your own cleverness. And I think that's probably what happened in the case of Jojo Rabbit, which is a movie where he literally plays Hitler in a funny way, which like is just, you know, maybe not. And I have no idea what's going on inside his head, but it feels like what he's done in the past few years has been a smart sort of course correct a little bit in terms of he obviously has great taste and is working with really talented people and sort of foregrounding them instead of himself, which, like, good, smart move. And then ironically, he himself is very foregrounded in this show because he's acting in it, and I think he's by far the best thing about the show. I think he's completely sensational. He's amazing. It's such, it's just an incredibly good performance. The character immediately is so fascinating. This wonderful balance between comedy and, like, extremely sincere emotional vulnerability And also so hot. He looks great. (laughs) When we did a little tease at the end of last week's episode, we both were like, he's just really hot. And that helps a lot. Because Taika Waititi is also, he's a snappy dresser who's pretty good looking for like a male director, which is not a field where looks are generally prioritized. Obviously, he's also an actor, but like usually he's not as prominent as he is in this show. But the beard and wig they've given him are unfeasibly high quality. American TV is not known for its wig quality, a complaint that we often have on this show, particularly with historical dramas. But his hair and wig both look very real and are gorgeous. The way he is performing around that, like for most of the show, he has this beard and he has to do a lot of acting to do with his kind of eyes and his posture and body language opposite Reese Darby, who's this very kind of over the top figure. And it's just does an amazing job. And his body language and his costume are just tremendous. He's wearing a kind of historicized version of the Mad Max costume. It's basically a copy of the Mad Max costume with some historical details. So it's like a leather one arm bodysuit with a knee brace, uh, which I thought was a nice little detail because this show is very carefully not having any peg legs or hooks for hands, but it's like Yes, I think a lot of people who are pirates would have disabilities and he has a knee brace, which I liked as a detail. Costume designer Christine Wada, amazing job on this show. Yeah, I mean, I really love costumes in film and television, but I'm not paying as much attention to them as you are in terms of like technical stuff, of course, because you know more than I do. But I was paying so much attention to the costumes in this show because they're so unbelievably clever and the mixture of period and anachronistic stuff, I think is incredibly fun. I mean, the one that a lot of people bring up is the character Fang, played by the actor David Fane from New Zealand, is a kind of secondary crewmate and he has like a Claire's accessories belt like wrapped around his head. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and because of the way the anachronism is mixed in, it's inviting you to pay attention to the clothing in a way that you might not in other contexts, even if you're appreciating it. Like it... It's like great cinematography. Often you may not consciously be paying attention, but it sort of informs your appreciation regardless. Like that's the same with any part of the craft of film. But in this case, it's so in your face in a good way that like you are going to notice things, right? Because you have 
Steed Bonnet is wearing basically just historical dress. Like it's very kind of a cartoonish version, but it is pretty close to the reality of early 18th century garb. And it kind of plays a lot into the show's treatment of gender, which we will definitely be discussing at length, where he both fits in with the idea of kind of a wealthy British colonial man in that he's very kind of fashionable and there's lots of frills and bright colours and fabric and stuff, which to a modern audience reads as kind of effeminate and not tough. And then the pirates are tough and or working class. So the main pirate crew who are his crew, who are the sort of gaggle of basically losers, love them all, are wearing some like very scruffy outfits, but representing their personalities. I think the actors had a lot of input into their uh, outfits. But then Blackbeard's crew are kind of biker gang and goths. And they're all wearing a lot of black leather and stuff because they're tough and dangerous. And they look a lot less historical. (laughs) There's a scene where like, Blackbeard and Steed Bonnet and one of the other supporting characters are like tramping around on like an island somewhere. And I realized that Taika Waititi was just wearing a t-shirt. Yes. (laughs) I was like, love that. Like, great. (laughs) But I do want to talk more about him and about that character. I mean, I have a quote here, which just to interrupt you before I forget it, and then you can continue with your point. There was this amazing quote from the LA Times interview with Taika where he says, This show actually made me fall back in love with acting. Sometimes you put on costumes and it does nothing for you and you don't feel anything. But I put this one on and instantly my body language changed. You just start feeling kind of like, I don't usually talk about this sort of stuff that a lot of actors talk about, but it's almost like, oh, I'm like an animal. But you really are like a fucking hammerhead shark in that tight stuff because of the way you walk. You're kind of just swaying around almost like you're just waiting to feed. When you start getting that feeling just from putting the clothes on, And then you add to that with the beard and the wig and everything. It's sort of like the job is half done, which is something you often hear about from actors. But his body language is like notably changed in a very cool way in this show. I think you can tell how much he's enjoying himself Mm -hmm. watching the show. Like he just feels really electrified creatively. And sometimes you watch a movie and someone feels like that and then you read like an old movie and then you read an interview or like an article about the making of it and you're like, and it's like these two people fucking hated each other. It's like, okay, well, actors are very talented. I mean, he and Beast Darby are longtime collaborators, kind of as you mentioned, they're obviously both Flight of the Concords. And I do feel like this was probably a bit of a returning to your roots thing for Taika Waititi especially after, as you said, this like massive amount of Hollywood success because he had this one-two punch of obviously the Thor franchise, which makes you a public figure. And like, he is clearly someone who like enjoys being a celebrity. He enjoys attention. <laughs> it is very, very yeah, explicitly uh-huh. part of his personality. Um, some directors do not like to be in public and he's like, I simply love to see the paparazzi and wear a nice little outfit, which go for it. But with this with a sitcom, you know, while this was in production, I, as someone who is fairly plugged into pop culture for obvious reasons, I did not know this show existed until after it came out. There wasn't like a bunch of stuff about them filming it, which happened during the pandemic. So it was like you were filming this in a pretty isolated scenario, like a sitcom situation where a bunch of people are on location filming something privately, and then you hear about it later. And that is probably very creatively freeing when you're otherwise under a lot of scrutiny as a recent Oscar winner and or someone working at Marvel, even though he is probably the Marvel director who has the most creative freedom. Yes. I mean, this is, they clearly no one was supervising them. Like, there's just no sense of anyone giving notes. I mean, I'm sure they got some notes, but, you know. And I was texting you while watching it that my main takeaway from this was that he should do more acting. Which, And then I was reminded that he literally played Hitler and Jojo Rabbit. And I was like, well, not that kind of acting. I want, I want that. Yeah, do good acting. <laughs> right. But I found him very funny in things before. I think he's really funny in what we do in the shadows in the original film. But that's a very specific kind of performance. And this is a really emotional performance. And I actually think he's so good that it's like almost slightly a problem for the rest of the show because And again, I feel like I'm going to be the critical voice because you're so enthusiastic that like I have to provide some sort of leavening ingredient that's like, well, let me provide a little bit of criticism. I really liked the show, but he felt so full of pathos in like a real way that the rest of the show is just not attempting that in any way, right? Which is fine, but it felt like he was 
almost coming in from some other universe. And so I was just like completely mesmerized by him and then enjoyed the rest of it, but was sort of like, but but I want to know what's going on with this guy. Like this is this is what I want this sort of answer to. And I just found that really exciting from someone who I kind of felt like I understood as a public figure. And then this side of him was revealed that I didn't quite grasp previously. I I found him really moving in this, like in a real way. And that's exciting. And that was a large part of the reason that I was so hooked on the show, I think. Also, he's hot. So, (laughs) I mean, he is absolutely wonderful. As you said, obviously, I'm a bit more obsessive. And I definitely have a bit of like fandom brain syndrome where I'm massively looking into deep analysis of every single secondary character. Like, oh, they're all fascinating. And I am definitely going to rewatch a lot of episodes because one of my flatmates hasn't watched most of the show yet. So I'm looking forward to looking into more detail. But I feel like there is a lot going on with a lot of the characters just in kind of background performance. And I also think that Reese Darby has a really interesting role to play here because his role is in a lot of ways like very silly right and it's kind of in his wheelhouse as a comedian as well but to make a character like that emotionally engaging is like very difficult from a writing performance perspective and like I was so invested in him there's all these scenarios where he's kind of put in embarrassing and sort of tragicomic situations. Yeah I mean I don't think the other actors are in any way doing a bad job or that the writing is bad with a couple small critiques, again, that I'll get into. I just think, I think sometimes, like, an actor is so good that it's like there's a comet going through a show. Yes. You know, like, <laughs> I felt this, I felt this way about Wyatt Russell on Lodge 49. That's one of my favorite shows, and I think everyone on it is incredible, but he's so luminous that you're kind of just like, you can't take your eyes off of him. And I felt a little bit the same way about Taika Waititi on this. What is anybody else going to do? Like, like <laughs> it's, it is what it is, right? You have a quote in this unbelievably long and involved document that you put together for this episode of David Jenkins, the showrunner, describing Blackbeard as Sofia Coppola's Blackbeard from Lost in Translation, which like, I don't think you've ever seen Lost in Translation. So you can't fully grasp I dropped that how... in for you because I was like, I've not yeah. seen it. <laughs> A totally perfect comparison and really speaks to the quality of the performance because Bill Murray plays this like middle-aged guy in that movie who's very successful and completely melancholy and is kind of just like, what is the point of my life? It's his best performance. I love that movie. I was obsessed with it as a teenager. And you do get that sense from... Taika in this show of like a middle-aged person who has kind of has it all but what's the point and to sort of give the other side of my earlier point I think there is also power in having that surrounded by more heightened comedy right because everyone else is kind of just going along and then not they don't have their problems but it they don't seem as heavy and then to have someone sort of sunk in the middle who's just like what the fuck man like (laughs) nothing matters it can be a productive contrast too it's a really smart twist on a recurring trope in a lot of pirate fiction and also just pirate reality which is the idea that even at the time when these people were alive they were celebrities it's engaging with that very directly which is something black sales does as well like black sales thematically is completely obsessed with the idea of people who are trying to fight for their own legacy or never receive a legacy in the historical record because they've been erased by white british colonial history but with this the story sort of revolving around the idea of blackbeard almost being a fictional character where Everyone is terrified and impressed by Blackbeard, but the one person who recognizes his inner self is Steed. And he's like, oh, you're like Ed, who's my pal, which is explained in very explicit terms. It's not a subtle theme, but it's just executed in this very sincere and moving way where it works especially well, I think, because they're both middle-aged, which in real life, you know, they were in their early and mid-30s. And in this, because they're kind of positioned as a bit older, it becomes this really moving story both about kind of realizing things about your sexuality but 
blossoming because you've met someone at precisely the right time for them to encourage changes in yourself, which is a really beautiful kind of love story because it's not just like love at first sight, which this is. And I, I love that as a trope, but it's like they really have this deep understanding that allows them to grow as people. And it kind of stunned me to learn that this is the first time David Jenkins has written a romance. <laughs> Because he simultaneously is like written an extremely well-constructed romance and then was somewhat blindsided by the extremely passionate fan response to the fact that this show is just like aggressively queer across the board. And he was just like, oh, I kind of wasn't expecting this. <laughs> I mean, maybe that ha- that's how it has to be, right? Is someone who just like stumbles into it with no awareness of what he's getting into. <laughs> and also an extremely diverse writer's room, one might add. <laughs> yes. Oh, I mean, absolutely. That is, is clearly contributing to what's going on here. It's the beauty of television, as we have said on many occasions in the past. It can go wrong when it's things are mismanaged or there's a lot of turnover, as we saw on Killing Eve recently. I mean, saw in quotes. I did not watch <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, but... I watched the first perfect season of Killing Eve and then rapidly pieced out. Yeah, me too. But like, that's an example of where the fact that things can be in flux a lot doesn't work. But if you stay in charge the whole time and are a good boss and are actually using in a positive sense, all of the talent that you've amassed in a constructive way, obviously, it's kind of unique among narrative media in a way that I think is really cool. And that's clearly something that they are doing well here. Yeah. I mean, on the note of the diversity of the creative team, there is definitely kind of one element which I think is, it's kind of a matter of opinion, but it's definitely been criticised and is something I was discussing with a friend prior to watching the show because she was like, um, so does this this show like tackle the fact that Steed Bonnet was a slave owner? And obviously no. The thing it kind of reminds me of slightly is Hamilton in that it's got this like very explicitly progressive tone. It obviously casts... Uh, Maori actor as Blackbeard, which does not reflect reality, but also it does reflect the reality of Caribbean pirate crews were very racially diverse. And this is something that the showrunner David Jenkins acknowledges like very explicitly in one of the interviews that we have linked in the show notes. He says, the real Blackbeard was a rapist who handed women over to his crew. The real Steed Bonnet was a slave owner. And to me, I'm just kind of like, well, with any light historical drama that involves rich British Empire characters, there's always this question of blood money, where it's like, are you going to acknowledge that every person's riches comes from somewhere evil? Or are you going to find other ways to tell that story in a way that's light and entertaining? And in this interview, Jenkins was basically like, the people in the writer's room wanted to tell a story that was like fun and has a lot of kind of explicitly anti-colonial humour, which is something Taika Waititi does in his other projects, including at Marvel. And they just didn't want to wallow in trauma. And your response to that, I think, is, as I said, it's kind of basically a matter of taste. Like, if you're someone who's just like, that grosses me out to raise that part of Steve Bonnet's history, valid. But at the same time, they're finding ways to, like, tell a story that has a racially diverse cast, that has, like, a lot of queer themes and stuff. It is definitely no Bridgerton. Let's put it that way. (laughs) I mean, I didn't know when I was watching it that Steve Bonnet was a real person. Like, this is, it's, I am not as plugged hard into to pirate believe history he is, as But you. as someone who is a bit more of a pirate maniac, I was like, oh, good. <laughs> yeah. But I found it very noticeable that they were just kept being like, Barbados. Like, just referencing it with, like, no allusion to anything yeah they're avoiding it because like there's this great sequence in one of the episodes where steed takes ed blackbeard to this aristocrat party to like teach him how to be an aristocrat so and there's like an upstairs downstairs comedy situation where like he's learning about the aristocrats and then two of the black crew members are with the servants and several times in the show there's these contrasts where like within the crew itself there's no racism and everyone is kind of very equal and very accepting of one another. And then when you burst the bubble of the pirate ship and go out into the rest of the world, particularly if it's somewhere that has a lot of European colonial influence, like people are racist. So it's not a show that doesn't have racism in it. And also there's like an episode where they are kind of kidnapped by indigenous people and like the white guys are almost executed just because like they're there and they're automatically the enemy. But with this, it's like you have the characters who are posing as servants have this very funny riff on the Nigerian prince pyramid scheme scam, which was delightful. You find out that the character Frenchie was like a servant at some point. 
But then once you go to Steve Bonnet's home back on Barbados, there's no kind of exploration or acknowledgement of where his money comes from or who's working for him or whether or not he's canonically a slave owner in the show. Because like as soon as you touch that, it raises questions and then you're going to puncture the idea of this guy being like a naive darling. Yeah, and you know, without thinking about it more deeply, like I don't have an immediate solution for the question of his character specifically, because obviously they want him to be very sympathetic. But I do think it's a problem that they skate around the whole thing so much. I feel like there are ways to, without like showing horrific, you know, scenes of slavery and abuse, whatever, to like make some of those sharp jokes at the expense of the upper classes, which I think when they do it can be very funny and on point. But the fact that they are like, there's this big thing we're just not gonna ever acknowledge, which includes like the fact that these people are there at all in the first place, right? Like, again, I watched this really fast and I enjoyed it a ton. So it wasn't like I was, you know, grumbling the whole time about this, but I was sort of like, interesting like (laughs) there's just seem to be avoiding this a lot yeah i'm kind of curious what they do in season two because i feel like the closest they get to it is there's a really great scene with the character olawande who's one of the more prominent members of the crew who's played by samson kayo i love this actor i think he has one of the hardest jobs in the supporting cast because he's basically just playing like this guy who's nice and quite responsible, which is extraordinarily hard to do in an engaging way when everyone else in the show is very wacky, but he does a great job. But um, he kind of has this quiet conversation with Steed where he's like, you understand, right, that we're not doing this for fun. You're kind of a tourist. The reason why we're pirates is because we have no other options. This is a horrible life. And Steve Bonnet is kind of treating it like his fun vacation because he's just completely delusional and really privileged. And that kind of like doesn't tackle any of the issues to do with race, but like does make that acknowledgement quite explicit to do with like the fact that he is just this huge poser. And they're able to include that while still just enjoying all the pirate stuff and it being really light. So it'd be interesting to see what they can do in season two in a way that's not gonna just make people feel miserable because like they don't want to watch a show where you like just have a bunch of people tormented yeah i mean i think ideally you would have set up that character and his situation in the first season the way that they set up his childhood i think is quite interesting because you get a scene of him and like I don't know. It doesn't seem like his dad. It seems like some other... It's his dad. I think it's his dad. Because it it felt like a not upper class enough person. Okay. I think that's because the way they dress him, because they show him in physical scenes and they have him wearing like an apron and stuff and killing an animal. And he's played by an American actor who's just doing a sort of generic accent rather than doing an upper class accent. Yeah, the accent was what was throwing me And of course, in this show, this is a world where both Steed Bonnet and Blackbeard are from New Zealand, so... (laughs) Yes, indeed. Anyway, so they show him with his dad, and his dad is quite awful to him. And you do get a sense of him kind of being just like... Like, he's just sort of moving through life without a lot of awareness or, like, control over anything. And I think there could be a way to do that in terms of the darker stuff be it slavery or just the exploitation of capitalism, right? Where, like, he kind of just is like, well, this machine is in motion, and, like, I don't really know. But they just don't engage with the topic at all. And obviously, any literature from this period, you know, the Jane Austen novels, whatever, I mean, they're slightly later than this, but, like, it's generally not discussed where all the money is coming from, but it's easier in a film to avoid that when it's back in England, right? Because they're, you know, that's what people didn't think about it because they were back home. And if you're literally in the Caribbean, it's just kind of like, well. However, for the most part, the show works. And that's just one thing about it that maybe doesn't quite. So why don't we move on to talking about some of the things that you in particular love a lot about what the show is doing. Because I know that there are many things that you could talk about for a long time with great enthusiasm. So Okay. Pick one. All right. Go for it. <laughs> We've talked a bit about the central relationship, but 
Obviously, this show's kind of treatment of queer representation in general is a massive part of its popularity. People are just like so overjoyed by the just the whole existence of this show, basically. Definitely something that's interesting about it is like the way that it is like a slow burn romance. And I also read like an interview with the showrunner where he was just like quite surprised and in a way saddened by the fact that loads of people kind of expected the show to be queer baiting because audiences are just so used to having that experience with shows where it's just this sort of like jokey subtext and it's like, oh, this is a bromance. And before I watched the show, I actually was like, I can't tell because the way people talk about shows where they're like shipping same-sex characters is completely the same when it's canon and non-canon. People are like, it's the gay pirate show. And I'm like, well, do you mean that literally? Or do you mean that in the sense that people think that the characters in Sherlock are canonically a couple? Because those are two very different scenarios. But with this, it really is. Like, it's explicitly, obviously, part of the story. And that's not just true of the central romance, but to do with the entire supporting cast. Like, there's a couple of other gay couples. There are queer actors playing characters that don't have any assigned sexuality within the text yet. There is obviously a non-binary character, which is still extremely rare on TV, especially in genre shows. Like, usually if there's non-binary characters, they're in kind of dramas, usually skewing quite young. So this felt like a pretty big deal. And just the way it's kind of a thematically queer story is just very interesting to me. Like, in one of these interviews... David Jenkins talks about how in recent years, what he describes as the burlesque of masculinity, which is a very good term, has been very apparent in culture. There's this all these kind of wars over gender identity that have become very aggressive and toxic and unpleasant. And this show is like extremely interested in just the concept of masculinity, both around its two main characters and the supporting cast. It's very rare in terms of like the way it gives really interesting deep roles to quite like effeminate or swishy gay men like Steed and Lucius, who's a secondary member of the cast who is absolutely wonderful, played by the actor Nathan Fode. And like those are characters who I guess like quote unquote act gay, right? And I think there's a lot of resistance to the idea of introducing queer characters that are directly reflective of real life queer culture and the idea of rebelling against gender norms and the choices that people make with their appearance and their behavior. Basically what I'm saying is a lot of queer characters across all mainstream media are extremely straight acting and that's like representative of some people's realities but also not representative of the community across the board and this show is you know very diverse in that regard and also creates a lot of really smart comedy around the idea of people's queerness and people's kind of attitude toward their own gender expression. Because Blackbeard's like initial introductory sequence is him being just heartbreakingly thrilled about having the opportunity to do something that's not self-destructively masculine, you know, because he's this character who's in this fucking lobster shell of leather armor and he meets someone who's like, come into my closet full of beautiful fabrics and have a makeover. And it's just a lovely, extremely obvious scene that is both like a joke about the closet and also just incredibly sincere and moving. And that is his whole kind of arc that season. And then we'll discuss kind of the end of the, the end of the series and the kind of spoilers toward the end of the podcast. But I love that whole situation and the kind of cultural exchange between Steed and Blackbeard. And then you also have the character Izzy Hands, who is a real fan favourite. He's a great character, I think. He is very well drawn. He's played by the English character actor Con O'Neill, who has an extremely wide-ranging resume behind him. He's done stage acting, he's done a lot of serious dramas, he's done blockbusters, he's done sitcoms. And here, kind of the character he's playing is described by a lot of fans as like either the one character who thinks he's in a serious drama or like the one human in a cast of Muppets. And he is not violent, which I think is an interesting detail. Like you don't actually see him doing a lot of extreme violence, but he is very aggressive and angry. And he is obsessed with the idea of Blackbeard retaining his original identity as this badass captain because Izzy's own identity is completely 
wrapped up in being this guy's second in command. And unlike a lot of depictions of that sort of relationship, it's not a guy who wants to be in control himself. He's not like, oh, I'm going to become a captain and control my own crew because he wants to be the submissive sidekick who's led around by Blackbeard. And I think a pretty clearly sexual way, like it's clear that he's in love with Blackbeard and like there's a definite kinky subtext that I think a lot of people are picking up on with uh, Con O'Neill's performance there. Also like the way he interacts with the character Lucius. I wrote a whole article about this, which I will link to in the show notes, but there's a great subplot that's to do with like Lucius using like his social skills and just like being flirty to get out of being punished by Izzy by just like being nice to one of the other crew members and flattering him and stuff. And Izzy is completely disgusted by this. He's like, oh my God, you're like, you know, essentially accusing him of cheating on his boyfriend. And it then becomes really clear that like among the pirate crew, A, they're polyamorous, it doesn't matter. And B, everyone basically just like quite likes Lucius because he's a fun person to be around and they're all really chill. Whereas Izzy is extremely wound up and neurotic and self-loathing and mean his internalized homophobia and his obsession with violent masculinity is just like completely tearing him up inside. It's ruining his life. And then he is also in the process, like the kind of final section of the show, which I think we can now go into more spoilers now. He is kind of instrumental in destroying this relationship between Blackbeard and Steed because he just wants Blackbeard any way he can get him to go back to his original state which he was very miserable in. Like, <laughs> Blackbeard hated being Blackbeard, but Izzy doesn't understand this because he's just like, he wants people to be efficient, badass pirates and he doesn't understand why someone would choose a life of comfort and affection and relaxation. Like, it's completely an alien concept to him. And then the final act of the show is this extremely upsetting breakup where the two lead guys do get to kiss and then agree to run away with each other. But then... Steed encounters like one of his long-term enemies who is played by Rory Kinnear. I can't believe we haven't really gone into A, Steed's wife or B, the presence of Rory Kinnear in this show. But um, Rory Kinnear is playing a classic sort of parody, shitty British aristocrat in this. And this guy kind of persuades him that he's actually this destructive presence and is like, you're terrible. Like you're ruining your life. You ruined your family's life. You ruined Blackbeard's life. So Steed runs off to go and like return to his family and see if he can patch things up with his wife, even though he doesn't want to, they don't have a good relationship and he's gay. And this leaves Blackbeard completely heartbroken and he has this like breakdown. It's a great kind of example of the show's comedy and tragedy because it is like funny and light, but it's also just extremely upsetting to see how heartbroken Blackbeard is. And both characters kind of during those episodes get little pep talks from Lucius, which I thought were very real. I think. Well, I have a lot to say about various things that you mentioned. (laughs) I think you spoke for around five minutes without breaking. So I'm going to double back to a couple things. Obviously, we have plenty to say about the ending, which we'll get to in a second. But I think in terms of the queerness, it's really interesting because as you described very well, like there are all these different types of characters, mostly men, expressing their queerness in different ways on the show, which is very refreshing. Um, I love Lucius. He was my favorite secondary character. I just found him, like, very funny. And like he, like, reminded me of people I have known, encountered, etc. And that feels quite fresh, though certainly not new. Like, that has happened before on television. But it's sort of wedded with this quite old-school romance, but that you would usually get in a way that never gets consummated, right? Because... Back in the day, as you said, like this always would just be subtext between two men. So, but a lot of the beats of that feel very familiar if you have watched media of this type. I mean, Good Omens is one that gets compared a lot because the central yeah. character dynamic is very similar. Well, it's the dynamic as the internet. <laughs> the dynamic, would like to famously say, the right? dynamic. <laughs> Right, which is like someone who's very kind of upstanding and, you know, wears sweaters or whatever, and then someone who's just like a huge mess. That has appeared many, many times, and that is what's going on here as well. And so a lot of it feels quite familiar, but there's something almost surreal if you are someone who has watched a lot of stuff like that, written fanfiction about it, whatever, to then be like, wait, it's actually going to happen? So of course people are going nuts, right? Because it feels shocking. But then there is this other component to the show, which is all of these other characters, which I think 
the combination of those two things, I think, is part of what's exciting about it. To me, the one critique I had, I felt like the show did a great job with the male characters and was less interested in the non-male characters. With Mary Steed's wife, I initially was like, well, she's fine. Obviously, the actress, Claudia O'Doherty, is very funny. But then toward the end, when he returns to her and her storyline is she's basically really glad to be a widow and she's got this little widow squad and her outfits are completely changed. I'm like, that is real as fuck. This is a classic like post-divorce story. And I loved that. Yeah, I really liked her in the last episode. I think Leslie Jones is totally fine as Spanish Jackie. Like, she's funny if she's not in any way doing a bad job, but like I didn't... I mean, she and Fred Armisen are basically just playing their own shtick. Yes, correct. Which like, fine. You know what? Whatever. I mean, I don't want to see Fred Armisen in anything ever, but he is like a cockroach. He can't Yeah, be he's there. The character that I was more frustrated by was the non-binary character um, whose name is Jim in the show. And this was something that like, I was frustrated by it and then also kind of by myself because I was like I want to just be excited about this because I knew that a lot of viewers were excited about it and I want to articulate myself very clearly because I know this was really exciting to a lot of people and the show is so deliberately anachronistic that like I'm not bothered at all by them having a non-binary character even though using the they pronouns for someone is not something that would have been happening in the 1700s in the same way that it is on the show right like I don't care about that that's like whatever right they're making all this shit up but it felt to me, less deliberately thought out, or at least the end product displayed less of whatever they had discussed than the way they handled race. So we talked about the way that you have some of those like sharp anti-colonial jokes that even if they don't, haven't quite figured out how to deal with slavery, you still get this sense of a power imbalance that when they do address it, I think is handled pretty well. Even if it's a fantasy, there is clearly a sense of understanding and the world of the show of the history even if it's through this sort of like very specific prism and the way jim's character is handled initially when we meet them they're in disguise undercover because they're on the run and then sort of midway through the show when the other characters find out what's going on and that they're not a man there's kind of this like, oh, well, what's really going on here? And then everyone starts using they pronouns. And I really wanted more context for what that character's journey really was. And I mean, you get some backstory for them, but it's not really about gender expression. And it felt like, well, is this convenience or is this actually gender identity, right? And then I just wanted more about like well what is gender really like in this world i mean i think it's very clear it's not convenience because that's something that's discussed no no i clearly it's not when we that's obviously not the case as the show goes on but because it's introduced in that way i felt confused a bit in the middle of the show and not in a way where i felt like the show wanted me to be confused it felt like the writing was falling down a little bit because like why introduce it in that way Well, it's a riff on the kind of old tropes about cross-dressing undercover pirates. Well, right. But then it isn't backed up by enough inside their experience, right? Like, it felt tokenistic to me in a way that the Black characters and the way that was handled in terms of the larger societal picture didn't feel at all. And I think that... I would love in the second season, which we haven't mentioned, it hasn't been renewed, but like surely they I mean, will renew the it. The idea of this not so being popular. renewed is, uh, no. I mean, HBO and Warner are like going through a huge merger with Discovery right now, so I suspect everything's kind of just like on pause while that happens. I can't fathom that this wouldn't be renewed. I would just really love to see a little bit more of like, again, like a social context for what this means. And I don't mean like, excess misery or like that this has to be an overwhelming burden for the character because it is a fantasy and you do just want to see Jim like murdering people in like a funny way but it felt like there was a piece missing to me and I was really frustrated because I was like well do the job you're doing with everybody else right and like come on that was my subjective response. I know that other people yeah. are really I mean, into it. To me, but, you know. I don't share those criticisms. I really loved the fact that this character, and indeed characters in general, didn't have 
a coming out sequence. I actually thought it was both very clearly an intentional choice and also a great choice that there's the episode where you find out that this character is not actually a man, like they remove their kind of fake beard and stuff. And then there's some sort of subtle nods in the next episode where all the other members of the crew are like really overreacting and like calling this character a lady and stuff. And they're like visibly uncomfortable with this. And then a couple of episodes later, when Jim has a more prominent role, you've just switched over to like using they, them pronouns. But the fact that like there is no coming out sequence and there is no kind of forcing a character to explain themselves, especially like this is clearly a character who doesn't want to explain themselves. I thought it was really good. And I think it, there are several non-binary writers in the writer's room, which is extremely unusual. And I think that's kind of something that has been very well received because it's not like you know, when there's like more marginalized sexualities and gender identities, a lot of the time TV shows gravitate towards reading off the Wikipedia page to like explain something in a sensitive way. And I do think at the same time, you're right in that the show does not use this really for comedy yet in the same way that there's a lot of much more serious jokes about like colonialism and stuff. And I expect that is probably because they wanted to treat this character with a lot more delicacy because there's so much more pressure and stress on this situation when there's like five non-binary characters in the entirety of television and I'm sure everyone involved like the actor Vico Ortiz who is also non-binary obviously I'm sure they were all very aware that the ways in which this could go wrong and could be like misinterpreted by the audience and you can cause like so much harm it does have I guess the negative term would be chilling effect but like it does mean that people are like more careful around that than topics that have been you know, used for comedy a great deal elsewhere. Well, to be clear, I'm not saying I wanted a big coming out scene. I don't think that would be interesting or good writing because that's clearly not what the show is interested in, as you said, or maybe it's just in the document, like there are no coming out scenes, period, in the whole show. But I think that they could have done a better or more interesting job with backstory, which again, doesn't have to be coming out or like extremely literal. But I think the backstory we do get for that character, I just think also that some of the writing for that character, irrespective of gender, was not as interesting to me as some of the other stuff. Like, because they have this big plot that has to do with revenge, it's more concrete than some of the lighter character stuff that some of the other characters get to do and by light I don't necessarily even mean like seriousness but just like the substance yeah. of some I of mean, the stuff the other characters in terms of secondary less... characters Jim has an actual subplot and Izzy has an actual subplot and Lucius kind of has an actual subplot and then Olawande has a lot of screen time without having any sort of backstory or subplot really and then you've got a whole bunch of other tertiary characters I should mention Joel Fry and Ewan Bremner are both in the supporting cast here and it's like it's just really wild (laughs) how much acting experience you have in this show there's a lot of people in the background of this who are you know extremely experienced stage actors or have been like leading actors in movies and that sort of thing like there's a lot of variety between just straight up comedy and dramatic acting but they do have much less complex roles like Joel Fry who is someone who could at any moment be leading a a major movie I think he is literally this guy who has kind of two shticks one of which is that he's just like a weird conspiracy theorist and he's a background guy and then Ewan Bremner who is this very recognizable Scottish character actor oh he's like the weird guy who's in love with the sea and has a pet seagull which actually reminds me I watched some of this with my mother and she was like very excited about Ewan Bremner because she was like oh he's getting to keep his really strong accent Although I think he's actually putting on a bit more of an accent for this because he's from Edinburgh rather from Glasgow. But um, Morgan, as an American, could you understand everything this man was saying? Pretty much. That's kind of what I assumed, but my mum was like, I'm sure Americans can't understand him. (laughs) Well, I have actually lived in the United Kingdom, so I'm a bad person to ask for this. I think there were a couple things he said that I didn't catch, but broadly speaking, I think I did get all of it. I think if you played this for... A lot of other people I know, they would be like, what's happening? I mean, I always think about my mother, who is also a bad example because she's hard of hearing. So like accents are difficult for her in general. But like anything that's not straight RP, she's just like, I don't. I mean, she watches stuff with subtitles anyway. But now that I'm thinking about it, if she had listened to that man, she would have just been like, no fucking clue. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know. Like, Gotta read the words. But uh, yeah, I found him very, very amusing. 
I mean, yeah, obviously those level of characters are purely just comic relief. I mean, I feel like Alawande and Lucius were the two that were the most successful in terms of writing and performance combined in that there wasn't as, again, the weight of having to sort of like carry a plot per se, but the characters felt really fleshed out yeah. to me. So you got a lot of personality from them and the actors are both wonderful. So yeah. like that helps. I feel very confident that all of these secondary characters are going to get bigger roles in future seasons, both because that's kind of what happens with all sitcoms with an ensemble cast, but also when you read interviews with the cast and crew, which I clearly have at length, (laughs) they're just always talking about all the stuff that these actors made up for their characters that didn't make it in. And stuff like, you know, I read an interview that was like, oh yeah, like the guy who plays Black Pete. They were like, oh, he's like the funniest guy on set. He's this like New York City theater legend. And I'm like, he's like the 15th most important character in the show. <laughs> he is very funny though. Yeah, he's very know? funny. He's very funny. But let's talk about the end. I will say also, it was very funny for me to watch it, having listened to you talk about it, because I was really envisioning a more central role for Izzy Hands and his whole situation. And then I watched it and I was like, this guy's barely registering for me. Like, this is not... Yeah, I mean, <laughs> he's definitely overrepresented in the fandom. I, I don't think I was talking about him really to you, but I think I was tweeting a lot because I was writing an article about him. So he yeah. is fascinating. Somehow I got it. It all... It, I was absorbed in some way. I mean, he's very funny, but... uh he didn't he didn't really penetrate but um i think the end of the season is totally brilliant and reassured me a lot in terms of the writers having a good grasp on plot and sort of not burning through too much too fast because i often think that television is a bad venue for romantic comedies because once the characters get together it's like well like, what else are we going to do? Which is what happened on The American Office. Like, I think once Jim and Pam get together, that show completely becomes banal and boring. But they broke them up. So that's yeah, great. They've I, both, I love they're both misery. entering their misery chrysalises, ready to hatch out. You've got Ed absolutely heartbroken. He's given himself a blackbeard makeover and covered himself in grease paint to, like, be the Kraken again. And is just, like, weeping hysterically in his cabin, which I was just like, this is incredibly upsetting. And then Steed is, like, realising that he's fucked up. He fakes his own death with help from his wife, which is a delightful detail. They also have one of the funniest famous comedy roles in this. There was a lot of, kind of, famous TV comedy people. But Tim Heidecker is playing Steed's ex-wife's new boyfriend, Doug. And instead of playing a huge freak like Tim Heidecker always does, he is playing the world's most normal man. And I was like, is this some kind of like meta commentary on the concept of Tim Heidecker? Because like this guy famously is like, he looks just the most average man alive, but he just plays a bunch of like real weirdos. And here he's like, hello, I'm Doug. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I didn't recognize him. I mean, I'm not an expert yeah. on his oh, I mean, but, for those who are not familiar with his work as a comedian, you will be familiar with the meme, it's free real estate, which is him. <laughs> yes. But yeah, I just thought the smartness of giving the audience just enough of what they want and then taking it away. It's like, perfect. Because if you actually give us everything that we want, it's not satisfying or enjoyable anymore, right? And the sort of possibilities for what might ensue and the misery that might ensue, delicious. And the fake death sequence that you mentioned is was incredibly Reese Darby, hysterically funny. <laughs> yeah. So basically, it's sort of been like reverted back to the beginning of this show except that they're both like emotionally in a catastrophic (laughs) Yeah, yeah which I love and this show is just full of really amazing detail work including with a lot of props and stuff which I look forward to examining in more detail when I've rewatched a few episodes but the two things that I really love from that final one or two episodes are First of all, right at the beginning, when the two leads are kind of introduced to each other in episode three or four, there's that scene like with the closet full of clothes where Blackbeard is kind of just overjoyed by the concept of all these beautiful fabrics and stuff. And he talks about there's this like one piece of fabric that he treasures and it's like this red handkerchief. And there's this romantic nighttime scene where Steed gets his handkerchief and like tucks it into his front pocket. 
And I saw that and I was like, holy shit, it's his heart. He's taken his heart out from his inside pocket and put it on the outside, like fucking symbolic. I was like losing my mind at this symbolic costuming red fabric thing. And then in the finale, after the breakup, when he's having his very melodramatic, but very real meltdown, he like flings this piece of fabric into the ocean. And I was like, my heart is breaking. He's flung it away after Steed brought his poor raw heart out into public. And then the other detail I loved was that kind of the opposite end of the scale, which is when Ed cuts off Izzy Han's toe and feeds it to him. And I was just like, this is one of the kinkiest things I have ever seen on a mainstream American television program. Their dynamic in a lot of ways reminds me a lot of the lesbian erotic art film, The Duke of Burgundy, which is about a dominant and submissive relationship that has a kind of unexpected power dynamic in it basically where it's like not it's a bit of a toxic relationship amazing film can't recommend it highly enough in other regards no resemblance to this show whatsoever just to be clear but like izzy has spent the whole show just trying to force blackbeard into this kind of aggressive violent dominant role and then now blackbeard is miserable enough to be back in that zone his response is of course to like torture izzy by cutting off his toe and feeding it to him and Izzy is like happy about this. He's just subtextually or literally turned on. Like he loves this. And I was like, the performance from Con O'Neill there, incredible, amazing, loved it. I have to say that was not going through my mind when I watched that scene. I was like, this is pretty fucked up and gross. I like, mean, it's that definitely fucked up and gross. It's also a good metric brain. of like your attitude. Because um, when I was kind of live tweeting the whole show, there was like, one of my tweets was just like, oh my God, the toe, like I'm never going to get over it. And someone replied with a piece of fan art that was like when Blackbeard nudges Steed's toe with his toe, like very cutely. And I was like, that is not the toe I was talking about. We are watching this show on different wavelengths. (laughs) Uh, Yes, that is correct. Oh, that feels like a weird note to end end this episode on. I'm not really sure where else to take us. Well, what do you want for season two, apart from the obvious emotional catharsis? There are two options that everyone in fan fiction is already gleefully treading, which is that everyone's just really mad and upset about everything, which like, great. Or that Ed slash Blackbeard thinks that Steed is dead because he faked his own death, which I also love as a potential, but I feel like he would figure out that it was fake because it's so transparently absurd. He's sometimes not very bright though, clouded by his emotions. True. But yeah, I am ready for the misery and estrangement to go on for many episodes so that when the <laughs> yeah. reunion Morgan finally happens, loves it's torment. like, yes. The longer that it goes on, the more I would be like, God damn it, like just get to it. But I know <laughs> that, that then it would be more satisfying. I mean- the first two episodes of this season don't have Taiko Waititi in them, really. And I was just like, where is he? Like, come on. I want to get to the romance. But it is it's structured totally correctly. Like, you need to wait a little yeah. bit. So I feel like they have a very good sense of pacing and, like, how yeah. all of that is going to yeah. work. Which is also so why I think, I think the show good. has to just stop after two or three seasons. Like, obviously, they may oh, surprise yeah. me, but this seems like something that needs to get wrapped up fast. This is a rare show where I feel like I have such trust in the people behind it that I'm just like, take me where you like, go for it. I have no concrete. I expect that you will have fun things for these characters. And as I said, I really look forward to a lot of the secondary supporting roles because I know I've mentioned Joel Fry several times, but it's like, I just feel like that is some high caliber person that you can just have more material with. Give him some songs, let's hear his backstory. Obviously, all of one day, I'm sure, is going to have more backstory because, like, he's much higher up the cast list. And then you can have someone like Ewan Bremner being the weird Scottish man. And it's like, he's fine. We don't need any further information about this guy at all. He's just a freak. No. <laughs> Absolutely not. Yeah, I feel like three seasons is the optimal length. But these sitcoms, they don't like to stop them. They like them to just go on. So we'll see yeah. what happens. I mean, I imagine Taika um... Waititi may be like, I'm busy. Yes, this is very true. On the other hand, he does love to hang out with his pals in New Zealand, so... Yeah, no, this is all in a box in California, apart from some parts of it, which are, I think, actually in the actual ocean. Um, There's a great part where they are exploring a fake 
tropical island and it is like the most obvious like park or botanical garden I've seen in my life and then someone on Twitter was like oh yeah it's this specific like California botanical garden I was like yeah there we go because like like, when people are just kind of walking around these wide footpaths (laughs) in the jungle oh my god so obviously like not a real natural environment Um, second only to whenever anyone is on a dinghy like a little boat and the dinghy is perfectly static as people are physically standing upright it's like I have stood upright in many a boat, and that's not how it works. <laughs> it's very funny. It is very obviously all shot on a soundstage, which is part of what I like about it, actually. It's like, charming. they're just not trying. So, yeah, we both like the show very much. Gav likes it more than I do, which is fine. We'll both be very much looking forward to season two whenever it appears, which we assume it will. So, thank you for listening. Um, if this was your first time, especially thank you we we love new listeners next week we will be discussing the new robert eggers film the northman which you have already seen and did not like yeah i mean i really like the witch and i love the lighthouse and this new much bigger film is a viking revenge thriller starring alexander skarsgård and various other people including nicole kidman and uh Yeah, I mean, Morgan hasn't formed her opinion yet, but I was kind of underwhelmed by this film, which, just to be clear, is getting four and five star reviews from pretty much everyone else. Yeah, so though a mutual friend of ours also didn't like it. So I honestly feel this is productive because everyone else I've seen, as you said, loved it. So I will now be going in just like, well, who knows? And we'll find out. I'm less of an Eggers fan than you in general. Though I like The Lighthouse, I don't like The Witch. Yeah, we will potentially have a very negative episode about The Northman next week. Or maybe I'll love it and we'll, it'll be contentious. Who knows? But that's obviously a big, big movie out this week everywhere. It costs a ton of money, so they're putting that in all the theaters. Yeah. The posters um, are like, it's the new Gladiator. And I'm like, you could make that argument. I mean, you compared it to Conan the Barbarian. He himself explicitly was like, I was trying to make Conan oh, the Barbarian. Oh, it's definitely, it's like, literally Conan the Barbarian. Yeah. It's the same entire plot as Conan the Barbarian, also starring an enormous man. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, we'll be doing that next week. We have a Patreon at patreon.com slash overinvested podcast that has a backlog of bonus episodes, if you would like to check those out. Including an episode on The Pirate, which is one of the greatest pirate movies ever made. <laughs> I was not even thinking that we had recently done that. And of course there is a connection. Yeah. So if you're going through a pirate thing right now and want to watch a musical starring Gene Kelly and Judy Garland about piracy. A very uh, unique and extremely horny musical. God, that film's good. Yeah. Oh my God. Amazing. One of the best things I've seen in quite a while. Yeah. So that's up there. If you want to subscribe, um, you can also request that we talk about something. So again, that's at patreon.com slash overinvested podcast. We also love ratings and reviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever other podcast platform you use. A five-star rating or review is particularly helpful with visibility. Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find my work at the Daily Dot written a very in-depth analysis article about episode five of Our Flag Means Death. And you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. And you can find my work at Bustle and find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at Overinvested Pod. Our Tumblr is Overinvested Podcast. Our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.